Good morning. After discussing the Constitution and its characteristics and executive legislative relations in the last two lectures, today's lecture will be concerned with the topic of federalism and policymaking. Let me briefly outline what I will talk about. I will start with the definition of federalism, what it means, why it is often such a contentious term, and what the advantages of federalism are considered to be. Germany, as you all know, has had a long history of federalism, and I will briefly sketch it out before dealing with the characteristics and development of federalism in the Federal Republic over the last 50 years, and especially after unification. As we will see, federalism is not uncontentious even in Germany. While some blame it for perceived blockades in German policymaking, others attribute to it many of the positive aspects commonly associated with German politics, such as a high degree of consensus, resulting in steadiness of implementation of agreed policies. But let me start with a few general words about federalism. Federalism can be defined as, I quote, a form of territorial political organization in which unity and regional diversity are accommodated within a single political system by distributing power among general and regional governments in a manner constitutionally, constitutionally safeguarding the existence and authority of each. End of quote. This is from the Blackwell Encyclopedia of Politics. So the two central features are, first, the distribution of authority between normally two levels of government, and second, the coexistence of unity and regional diversity. We find these features in all federally organized states, such as, for example, the United States, Switzerland, Australia, to mention a few in addition to, of course, Germany. They are distinguished by showing signs of statehood both on the level of central government and regional government. By that I mean that you will find, for example, written constitutions, elected parliaments, governments and prime ministers or minister-presidents on the level of regional entities, the Länder, as they are called in Germany. But let me briefly say something about different meanings associated with the term federalism. There is a clear difference between the meaning that is associated with the term in many Anglo-Saxon countries, where it is associated with more centralization, and with the meaning ascribed to it in continental European countries, where it is associated with the precise opposite, namely less centralization. This is important to keep in mind. Similar confusions exist with the term liberalism, which stands for the political left in America and for the right in Europe. The confusion about federalism can be traced to the American 18th century debate between federalists and confederalists, with the former standing for a stronger central state. So, please keep in mind that the same word may convey different meanings in different contexts. But for, but for what we're talking about today, you will see that federalism clearly stands for decentralization of power. Now, a question that obviously comes to mind is, why would one want federalism at all? Isn't this just adding an additional layer of bureaucracy, as its critics often claim, and isn't the creation of competing centers of power a recipe for conflict and strife? Of course there are no definitive answers to these questions, but I can give you some arguments that have been put forward by supporters of federalism. Among them are the combination of unity to the outside world with the preservation of diversity 
and autonomy in domestic affairs, a general limitation of government power through a dispersion of it, more participatory rights for citizens, and competition between the different constituent states resulting in more innovation, responsiveness and generally better government. Lastly, you are all familiar with the key words checks and balances and separation of powers which have also been put forward to justify federalism. If you want to read more about these reasons, then I recommend to you among the classical texts of political theory, above all the Federalist Papers, or Alexis de Tocqueville's book on Democracy in America. But you will also find more recent contributions, like that of the economist James Buchanan. To sum it up, it is important to keep in mind that federal systems share one main characteristic, and that is that they have multiple sources of authority and legitimacy. Both the federal state and the constituent states exist in their own right and therefore often also have their own sources of revenue, for example. There is no subordination of one over the other in principle. But let me now, after this brief tour d'horizon, turn again to our main subject, federalism in Germany. The origins of German federalism do not lie in a conscious choice in 1949 or at any one point in time before that, or at least that would only be part of the story. The origins of German federalism lie in a government by division of power, negotiation, contracting and cooperation which remained the predominant state practice in Germany after the 18th century when processes of concentration of power led to the foundation of the modern state in France and in Britain during the same time. Before a German nation-state came into existence in 1871, Germany was a latecomer in this respect, there were a number of federal and confederal associations of German states. The Confederation of the Rhine was founded under Napoleon's tutelage in 1806, the Customs Union of 1833 and the North German Confederation of 1867 also deserve mention. The Reich of 1871 was organized as a federal state in order to allow the previously independent constituent states like Bavaria, Saxony, Württemberg and Prussia to accommodate their heterogeneous legal, political and cultural traditions. While it seemed at the time a great step forward over previous arrangements, which had been anxious to preserve the independence of the German states, it avoided the parliamentarization of the federal, federal aspect, as is, for example, the case in the United States with the directly elected senators. Rather, the German solution of 1871 rested on cooperation of the state governments. The Bundesrat of then had the same name, but far more powers than its cousin today. It was the supreme body of legislation and government in the Reich. Another main difference was that Prussia dominated everything because it accounted for roughly two-thirds both of the area and the population of the Reich, as you can see on the slide. As a type, this Bismarckian creation has been labelled Executive Federalism by Gerhard Lehmbruch and set an important precedent for future solutions, an example of what in political science is called path dependence. In the post-World War I constitution, 
the so-called Weimar Constitution, the Länder clearly lost power. Germany made the transition to democracy and to a parliamentary form of government, with the Reichstag, the directly ele elected parliament, becoming more important than the Reichsrat, the Länder Chamber. After the disappearance of federalism during the Nazi dictatorship, the Basic Law of 1949 reversed that trend again, as the Länder regained part of their power. One reason for this was of course the founding of the Federal Republic through the Länder, which thus, so to say, set the stage and were in a strong position. Prussia had been dissolved by Allied decree, which left no one single land to dominate the scene. The second influence on the federal character was Allied interest. The United States, a federal country itself, favoured a federal structure for Germany to impose checks and balances and the French favoured it because in their view it would weaken Germany, preventing it from ever threatening France again. Still, despite all superficial similarity with previous German constitutional settlements, a major difference remained. For this time, the executive federalism of old was combined with a parliamentary democracy and this created new dynamics and cleavages to which I, come, I will come in more detail later in this lecture. But first of all, let me give you a brief taste of how different the lender of the Federal Republic are and let me introduce to you their main constitutional responsibilities. As you can see on the handout, the lender vary enormously between them with respect to important indicators. They vary extremely in te terms of sheer size, with the largest of them, in terms of area Bavaria, being no less than 175 times as large as the smallest, the city-state of Bremen. Even if you leave the three city-states, Bremen, Hamburg and Berlin, out, the variation between the rest is still considerable. Have a look at the map on the handout or here on the slide. Variation is greater still with respect to population. Nearly a quarter of the 80 million Germans live in one state alone, North Rhine-Westphalia, and half of them, some 40 million, in three states combined, North Rhine-Westphalia, Bavaria and Baden-Württemberg. As an aside, if you look at the next to the last column on the handout, you will find that th these three states, in which 50% of all Germans live, have only barely over a quarter of the votes in the Federal Chamber, the Bundesrat. At the same time, the six smallest states combined have 10 million inhabitants, but 20 votes in the Bundesrat, two more than the three largest combines combined, which together have four times the population of the six smallest. This compression of variation is typical of federal states. Just think of the United States, where it is even more extreme. The tiny state of Wyoming, with only half a million inhabitants, has two senators in Washington, just as the largest state of the Union in terms of population, California, which has 32 million, or, 60, or nearly 60 times as many as Wyoming. The third column on the handout gives you figures which can serve as a rough guide to economic strength or weakness of the different lender. 
Note that the variation is substantial even in the upper part of the table, which comprises the lender of former West Germany. But the new lender, which exceeded in 1990, are still clearly behind. Their GDP per capita is more than a third less than that of the Western lender. As we will see later in this lecture, it is not least the combination of this great economic disparity with the combination of compressed variation in voting power that makes for some very interesting political dynamics, especially in post-unification Germany. But before I get into the analytical part, let me first familiarize you with the core constitutional responsibilities of the German lender. The rough distinction between the two levels of the German political system is that legislation is primarily in the domain of the federal level, while administration is primarily in the domain of the lender. Let me explain that in a bit more detail and let me start with the lender. They have, under the basic law, the right to legislate in a number of policy areas and in addition they possess residual powers which means that the Constitution gives them the right to legislate on any matter that has not been explicitly allocated to the federal level of government. The latter, however, has little significance because the basic law today contains very comprehensive lists of subject matters which are the exclusive responsibility of the federal level in Article 73, of concurrent areas of responsibility in Article 74, and of areas in which the federal level can lay down framework laws or issue authoritative policy guidelines, Article 75, etc. In fact, this means that the areas in which the lender have the right to legislation has become extremely restricted over the decades. The two main domains in which they retain sole responsibility are education and police, and both areas are jealously guarded by the lender. A main reason why legislative responsibilities of the lender have shrunk over time is a commitment of the basic law towards unitary living conditions. Let me quote from Article 72. In the field of concurrent legislative power, the Federation as legislation if and in so far as the establishment of uniform living conditions in the federal territory or the preservation of legal and economic unity necessitates, in the interest of the state at large, a federal regulation. End of quote. The requirement of uniform living conditions is a big one, and this regulation was a main reason, it served as an opening clause, for the expansion of federal legislation over the decades. In recent years, however, this has met substantial criticism and consequently the requirement has been changed to, quote, equivalent living conditions, meaning that different lender should be allowed more room for experimentation. For experimentation. Also, if their legislative competences have shrunk, the lender have been compensated for this with increased participation rights in legislation on the federal level. There has been a reform of the competences in the federal system last year, but since your textbooks do not yet reflect it, 
I will not go into the details here in order not to confuse you. The purpose of the reform has been to try to disentangle the joint responsibilities in the system to allow for greater accountability. Whether that will indeed work, we will have to wait and see. Let me now come to the field of administration. As I said earlier, administration is largely in the domain of the lender. Again, let me quote from the Basic Law, Article 83. The lender execute federal statutes as matters of their own concern insofar as this constitution does not otherwise provide or permit. End of quote. This has important consequences. On the one hand, it means that the federal level has little, or in many fields no, bureaucracy of its own, and thus has to rely on cooperation of the regional bureaucracies for implementation. As you can imagine, this may sometimes prove difficult, as it involves a lot of coordination with regional and local level civil servants. Germany is thus characterized by a bureaucracy that is much more fragmented than, say, the British or French, and this has consequences such as the diminished state power and regional variation in public policy. A last point I want to mention is that of sources of revenue. This is obviously of great importance. In the German federal system, each level has its own sources of revenue. You will find the details in Article 106 of the Basic Law. So the revenues from excise taxes such as fuel tax, tobacco tax and insurance tax go to the federal level, while revenue from such taxes as motor vehicle tax, inheritance tax and wealth tax go to the lender. The revenues from the most important taxes in terms of revenue, however, income tax and value-added tax, belong to the two levels together and are distributed between them. This is again indicative of the strong unitary commitment inherent in the German federal state. The relative shares of the two levels are not fixed in the constitution, but are subject to negotiations between them. While the relative shares of each have varied over time with respect to some taxes, the overall share of revenues from taxation has not varied very much over the last decades. But you can imagine that negotiations about the relative shares always make for some very hard bargaining. In addition to being jointly administered, namely by the lender, there is an additional characteristic of the strong disposition towards unitariness in the German federal system, and that is a provision for fiscal equalization. You find it in Article 107 of the Basic Law. This is mainly of importance with respect to the varying economic strength of the lender that I mentioned earlier. A consequence during the last decade was that the East German lender received massive transfers both from the federal government and from the stronger Western lender, much to the dismay of the latter it should be added, and they have challenged the system before the Federal Constitutional Court. To sum things briefly up, the system of German federalism is characterized by what has been termed by Fritz Schaaf interlocking politics and joint decision-making. 
The type of federalism is quite different from, say, federalism in the United States. While there each level has separate legislative responsibility and also sources of revenue for their own tasks, things are largely operated in a joint fashion in Germany. Legislative authority largely rests with the federal level, but the lender have a strong say in it. The same holds true for tax revenues where the legislation is also done by the federal level, but revenues are then distributed among the two levels of German government. Overall, this system is widely known as one of cooperative federalism. Now, after having talked about the general characteristics of German federalism, I would like to focus on the development over time, i.e. over the last 50 years. But before I do that, a few analytical words in advance. German federalism can be analysed in terms of three main cleavages. First, the cleavage between party competition on the one hand and lender cooperation on the other hand. Secondly, the cleavage on the lender level between cooperation on the one hand and distributive conflict on the other. And thirdly, the cleavage that results from European integration. As we will see, each of these cleavages emerge in a specific situation and they have been more or less prevalent over time. The first cleavage, that between party competition and lender cooperation, results from the fact that the constitution requires the federal and the lender levels to cooperate, but that this cooperation may be difficult if there are divergent party majorities on each level. Some periods of the Federal Republic's life were characterized by such divergent majorities, such as the 1970s and most of the 1990s. But it would be short-sighted to analyze lender behavior only in party political terms. Often, the lender interests are quite distinct from those of the federal level, and it would be foolish to sacrifice them for party political reasons. But that is exactly where the tension comes from, and it is difficult to foresee which of the two loyalties, so to say, of a land minister-president will prevail in a given conflict, that towards his land's interests or that towards his parties. The second cleavage results from the fact that the lender have a great interest in cooperation among them, not least because that will give them a strong position in conflicts with the federal level, but at the same time they also compete for resources, such as, for example, funds from the federal government. This cleavage is one that becomes most noted, especially in times of economic problems, and it first emerged after the crises of the 1970s. The trend of the in the, in the first two decades of the Federal Republic, between 1949 and 1969, was one of unitarization and reform. At that time, one saw little of the conflicts that I just spoke about. There were many reasons for this low level of conflict. The historical territories of the German lender had been split and the new entities first had to develop a sense of identity. 
they did so rather quickly. At the same time, the huge post-war migrations into and within the Federal Republic, combined with a very favourable economic development, the so-called economic miracle, led to a reduction of disparities between the regions and consequently of potential distributive struggles between them. The federal level, taking the constitutional commitment for uniform living conditions seriously, helped the poorer lender with grants, although there was no constitutional basis for such grants at the time. Further unitarization was achieved through institutions of coordination between the lender, such as the Conference of the Minister-Presidents or the Conference of the Ministers for Education. These were institutions for which the Basic Law makes no provisions, but nevertheless they exerted a powerful influence and continue to do so until this day. In 1969 a major reform of the Constitution eventually put a constitutional foundation under the long-standing practices of federal grants to the lender. In addition, revenue sharing was increased and a number of joint institutions between the federal level and the lender were created that should help coordinate the respective actions even better, primarily in the fields of spending policy. A number of policy areas were designated to be joint tasks between the two levels of government, such as the building of universities and improvement of regional economic structure. Here, the federal level gave substantial contributions and received in exchange a say in the regional implementation of these tasks. But these joint tasks soon came to be seen as an ambiguous sort of progress, the federation having the lender on a lead, a golden lead, sure, but a lead nevertheless. The constitutional reforms of 1969 institutionalized these practices and formalized the system of interlocking politics so characteristic of German federalism. But at the same time conditions started to change and the hitherto cooperative relationship between the federal level and the lender increasingly gave way to confrontation. The period between 1969 and 1990 is perhaps best characterized as one of conflict and incremental adaptation. The reason was the change in government in late 1969 to the SPD-FDP coalition. It embarked upon a number of highly contentious reforms, not least in the area of foreign policy. As a result, the predominantly CDU-governed lender started to discover the potential of the Bundesrat as an instrument of blockade. When, after the 1973 oil shock, economic problems, recession and increasing unemployment hit Germany, these tensions were exacerbated and the first cleavage I spoke of earlier emerged, that between party competition and cooperation within the Federation. Blockades emerged in the policy process as negotiations became more and more difficult between the two levels of government due to party competition. 
the reform policies of the Social Liberal Coalition came to a hold and gave way to a predominance of crisis management. An indication of the conflict is the increase in laws passed by the Bundestag, the Parliament, which failed due to an absolute veto in the Bundesrat, the Länder Chamber. The proportion of these failed laws multiplied fivefold. But if you think that this blocked German policymaking completely, you are wrong. For even after the fivefold increase, these failed laws only amounted to 1.7% of laws passed by the Bundestag, an indication of how relatively well cooperation still functioned even under such adverse conditions. It thus comes as no surprise if I tell you that political gridlock did not occur. While West Germany was hit hard by the economic recession of the mid to late 1970s, these years were mastered better in terms of unemployment growth and inflation performance than in many other industrialized countries. But the economic recession had an effect on the practice of federalism. The federal government, burdened with costs of recession and decreasing revenues, could no longer equalize the regional disparities through grants and as a consequence regional disparities grew. The second cleavage, one of increasing distributive fights between the lender, emerged in the late 1970s and early 1980s, just as the first receded, because there had been another change in federal government and the new CDU-FDP coalition held majorities in both houses of parliament again. The emergence of the new conflicts centered around the issue of fiscal equalization among the countries. As the richer lender increasingly had to pay for the poorer ones, the ones hardest hit by the decline of the coal, steel, mining and shipping industries. German unification in 1989-1990 came as a complete surprise and shock to the system. It brought about a hitherto unseen degree of centralization of decision-making because of the extreme speed with which the process unfolded. Two results are especially noteworthy. The lender accepted being left out of the decision-making, but as a result the federal level had to bear most of the costs. These costs were substantial as the newly integrated East German regions needed economic assistance on a huge scale. The system of fiscal equalization had to be reformed completely. But that proved difficult, indeed it has not been accomplished to this day. Instead, a sequence of ad hoc decisions were made, which primarily resulted in increased borrowing from the federal level and the setting up of the German Unity Fund, which provided financial resources for the new East German lender. What emerged now has been labelled asymmetric federalism. Now, where does the asymmetry lie? Actually, it is a double asymmetry which relates to both economic interests and the party system. On the dimension of economic interests, the main divergence here lies between the relatively better off Western and the poorer Eastern lender with the former wanting to reduce and the latter 
to extend funds for fiscal equalization. On the dimension of party competition, which quickly re-emerged after unification, this line of tension is deepened by the fact that the East German party system differs from the West German party system. The main difference is that the West has a four-party system, two big parties, SPD and CDU, and two small parties, the Greens and the Liberals, while in the East the latter two are of negligible size, while the former Communist Party, the PDS, which is negligible in the West, plays an important role resulting in more or less a three-party system. I will go into more detail of, on this in next week's lecture. But the multiplication of party coalitions on the lender level that resulted from this dual party system in the 1990s did not, as one might expect, result in gridlock. Rather, negotiations became more complex because there were no simple majorities anymore, for example in the Bundesrat. And if the lender set their differences aside and joined forces against the federal government, they could score substantial victories. This became most evident with respect to the third principal cleavage characterizing German federalism that I mentioned earlier, that around European integration. It emerged in the early 1990s and centers around the fact that increased European integration tended to adversely affect the lender in two respects. First, they were losing competences to European institutions. Secondly, they were not being compensated for this through increased participation either on the federal or directly on the European level. In the early 1990s, with the Maastricht Treaty increasing European integration substantially, this cleavage was brought to centre stage in German politics. The fact that the treaty had been signed by the German government but needed the consent of the lender for ratification put the latter in a very strong bargaining position. They threatened to veto the treaty and used it to extract substantial concessions in terms of participation rights from the federal level and to secure these rights for the future through a substantial constitutional amendment, namely the regulations set down in Article 23. European policies thus in effect became a new joint task between the federal government and the lender. This has important consequences for the bargaining position of the federal government on the European level, although the direction of this influence is not clear. It can both serve to strengthen the German government in European negotiations, for example because it, its hands are bound and it cannot compromise beyond what it has agreed with the lender. But at the same time this can in other circumstances weaken the federal government precisely because it has little room for manoeuvre. We can conclude by saying that the development of the 1990s, the development in the 1990s, uh, do not run counter to the logic of the German system of federalism. Its system of interlocking politics and joint decision-making is being extended to include the European level, transforming the whole of the German political system into one of multi-level governance, as it has been called. Let me come to the Bundesrat now. 
The Bundesrat is the legislative chamber through which the Länder exercise their constitutional right to influence German federal legislation, and that is, as we saw earlier in this lecture, most of German legislation, or at least most of the legislation that is really important. The Bundesrat is often, in studies of comparative government, called the second chamber of the German legislature, but that is not really true. The Bundesrat is not a proper second chamber. One reason for this is that it does not consist of directly elected parliamentarians, but of delegates from the Länder governments. Their authority and legitimacy is thus not a direct one, but derived from the Länder elections. The other main reason is that the Bundesrat is not a parliamentary assembly in the sense that free deliberations lead to votes that are, at least in principle, open. Rather, the delegates are bound by the decisions of their governments and deliberations primarily serve the purpose of announcing positions and justifying them. I will not bore you with all the details of the legislative process. It's a complicated one and you probably best familiarize yourself with it from a textbook. Here I only want to mention the most important characteristics. The most important fact in this respect is that in German federal legislation there are two types of laws. Those that require the consent of the lender through the Bundesrat and those that do not. You may remember that from last week's lecture. In the first case the lender possess what one may call an absolute veto. They can prevent a law passed by the federal parliament, the Bundestag, from entering into force. As you can see on the handout, these laws today account for about 60% of all laws. And you can also see that this proportion has increased substantially since the early years of the Federal Republic. It was about 40% then. This reflects a main feature of German policymaking that I mentioned earlier in the lecture, namely that the areas in which federal legislation is decisive have expanded, but that the lender were compensated for that loss of autonomy through increased participation rights. Now, what happens with the other 40% of the laws in which the Bundesrat has no absolute veto? In these cases, it possesses a suspensive veto, which means that any such veto can be overruled by the Bundestag, the federal parliament. How easily that veto can be overruled depends on the majority with which it was passed. If the Bundesrat vetoes a law with a majority of its votes, then the parliament also only needs a majority of its votes to overrule the veto. If, however, two-thirds of the members of the Bundesrat vote against such a law, then the Parliament also needs two-thirds of its members to overrule such a veto, a high hurdle which normally requires the cooperation of the opposition. But such cases are extremely rare. There are two main reasons for this. One is that, as became evident in the course of this lecture, the German system of policy-making is one that is characterized by a tendency towards cooperation between the federal and the lender level. The other is that any prudent government that knows it is dependent on the, cons uh, on the consent of other political actors will enter into consultations with them early in the policy-making process. 
And that is also typical of the German policymaking process. The basic law prescribes that the Bundesrat is included in this process at an early stage so that any serious obstacles will become evident soon. And then they can be dealt with in one of the over 100 institutions of cooperation between the federal and the lender level. The most important one and the one crucial for legislation is the so-called Mediation Committee or Vermittlungsausschuss. On this committee, which has at times been called a superparliament, one representative of each of the lender and 16 members of the Bundestag can discuss contentious legislation, but only if that is demanded by either the Bundesrat or in cases where the latter's consent is required uh, by the Bundestag. The deliberations of the Mediation Committee are not open to the public and are confidential. Their proceedings are only published in the next but one parliament, a minimum of four years hence. Also, the members of the committee are not bound by decisions of the chamber from which they are delegated, and they are not accountable to them either. All these regulations are skewed in a way to make compromise easier and to lessen confrontation. This again fits well into the overall picture of German policymaking that I outlined earlier. Perhaps the best proof of these characteristics of the process is the very low number of laws that ultimately failed in the second stage of legislation after having been passed by Parliament. Over the decades, the average is barely over 1%, 1.2% to be precise. And that includes the periods of confrontation that I mentioned earlier, when this rate rose to 2 or even 3%. Overall, this supports our view of German policymaking as a strongly cooperative operation, which you may call low-voltage politics. To end the lecture, let me briefly summarize the main points of what I talked about today. German federalism is marked by a set of features that are not necessarily found in all federal states. Chief among them are a strong commitment towards uniformity of living conditions and cooperation between the different levels of government. The system has been labelled as cooperative federalism to distinguish it from the more competitive systems of federalism such as the one in the United States. It is also marked by a combination of decentralized political institutions and highly centralized interest representation, both on the trade union and the employer side, but also more generally. For Peter Katzenstein, this is one of the most distinguishing features of the Federal uh, Republic. The parties in the Federal Republic are also organized in a centralized manner although the German party system has undergone changes since unification. But the parties are again very different from those in the United States. They have strong central organizations and are capable of pursuing centrally organized political strategies. It is thus a distinguishing feature of German federalism that a democracy with strong competition and confrontation among parties has been put together with a system of federalism that has had a long tradition of cooperation and compromise between governments and executive federalism, as it has been called. In federal systems, the dynamics of politics 
are determined by the structure of the party system that was already pointed out by William Riker in his 1964 book on federalism. Today we dealt with the federal system. Next week we will deal with the party system in more detail. Thank you.